Amen. Please be seated. Turn with me in your Bibles again to 2 Peter chapter 2. Today our focus will be on verses 10 through 18. I'll start reading at verse 9 to connect with last week's passage. The thesis of 2 Peter can be summarized by saying it is a pastoral apostolic encouragement to grow in grace and knowledge. Grace being that undeserved favor God shows to sinners through Christ. Knowledge being the body of information God reveals to bolster this simple truth of grace. You have to have both. And that's why he encourages us to grow in just grace and knowledge. Not just grace or just knowledge. Not just simply focusing on the simplicity of the gospel, though it be precious and beautiful in its simplest form. To be grounded in it or become steady in it, we have to grow in knowledge. If you just grow in knowledge, that becomes ugly without grace. Grace and knowledge together. This is the encouragement from the apostle. The first chapter he builds this case and entreats us to live out our calling and our election by manifesting those virtues that the Holy Spirit produces in believers. And then chapter 2, he breaks into what has been described as the burning lava of the apostles' indignation. Or others have said, a righteous tirade against those who would come in and sweep away these foundations and teach falsehood. So we spent the first eight verses, first nine verses, looking at this introduction. Now we begin reading the middle section. I've divided this chapter into three parts, three sermons. So today is part two of Peter's warning concerning false teachers. Hear God's word. I will read verses 9 through 17 of 2 Peter 2. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority, bold and willful. They do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones, whereas angels, though greater in might and power, Do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong is the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice and steady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. Let us pray. Lord, these are deep words. These are heavy words. This is a difficult portion of Scripture even. But Lord, we praise you for giving us the truth. And Lord, we recognize as we see these sins of the false teachers that uh, they have a commonality that are potential for all of us. And I pray that you would teach us in this way. And Lord, I, with the same words that Jonathan Edwards said, I pray that if we truly come to you in Christ for mercy, that the greatness of our sin 
will be no impediment to pardon. We thank you for this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, at some point, our parents have to reveal sensitive matters of sin to us for our own protection. Now, I as a parent, together with my wife, wrestle regularly with how and when to teach our sons about certain realities in life, realities that are external to them, the world they live in, but also internal, their own sin, and the sin even of their parents, how to talk with them about this, that they might process it in light of the Word of God. I wish I didn't have to tell them about death and suffering. I wish I didn't have to tell them or explain to them why there, is, um, there are multiple wars going on, why people do terrible things to each other, why people say terrible things. I wish I didn't have to talk to them about personal sin matters that they will be confronted with themselves and they'll see even in their own parents. I wish I didn't have to repent before them for my own sins. Fact is, though, however, in time and with a certain amount of maturity, I have to talk to them about these things. They're too serious to not talk to them. You know, when exactly? That's the wrestling. But whether or not I should, no question. Got to wrestle with these things and with them, about them. Peter's a pastor here, and he could do some light and fluffy stuff. But he's telling us what we have to hear because serious things will happen. Paul and his ministry warned that as soon as he left, in the midst of all the euphoria of the early church, all these mass amounts of conversions and Jews coming to faith and Gentiles coming to faith, one church with Jews and Gentiles, the excitement seems like even the Roman Empire can't stop this growth. But Paul said in Acts that as soon as he left, people would come in behind, up from their midst and from without and coming within, and they would teach false doctrines and, and lead them away for their own gain. Peter, at the end of his life now, writing this epistle, says similarly, that just like there were in the Old Testament time, just the way Paul forecasted it, and now there will be those who creep in in Peter's day, and this has not yet stopped. In fact, what is spoken of here is ugly. It's not light and fluffy stuff. It's not warm fuzzies we're speaking of. It's what Galatians 5 talks about, the deeds of the flesh in full form put on display by false teachers. But every one of us knows as we read through and see the 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 extremeness of it, that every one of those things touches us because we're sinners and we recognize in our own selves our possible uh, potential fall to these things as well. You know, just as Peter was giving an example and his passion and purpose and his power, the word of God, just as he was giving that example pastorally, now also we have an example of false teachers to consider and what sin leads to. Just as faithful pastors give us godly models to follow, False teachers give magnified examples of sins common to all. I say magnified because they're out front, and the sins that they commit are for all to see, and they're magnified for this reason. But let none of us think that they're not still common to each of us. Let us approach this text this morning in three different ways. First, again, let's visit the general warning given to beware of false teachers. Second, and for the sake of clarity, not because it's so much a technical distinction, but really there are two categories of sins addressed here. Uh, there's the category of sensual sin, that, is what, that which can be experienced by our senses, and then also the category of arrogance or pride. Those are two th- topics or headings you might put the list of sins I just read through under. Sensual sin and arrogance. These two things that typify the false teacher, but also can be evidenced in our own lives as it shows its head. Now, if you think that this doesn't apply today, that, oh, I wouldn't fall prey to a false teacher, 
I'd warn you that many have thought that and have fall, fallen prey. Now, I hope you're in a place now in your life here in this church and in your walk with the Lord where you are not described as a text described unsteady, that you're steady, that you're built up, you're firm, you're supported by those around you, holding up the truth before you. But recognize that I have met people, even in our own tradition, that prides itself on doctrinal learning and knowledge and understanding. I've seen people in our own tradition fall prey to terrible, terrible false teaching. When Sherry and I got married in 1993, our first church together was a PCA church in Wichita. We loved this church. It was a small church with deep teaching and uh, wonderful fellowship and uh, support from the congregation. At the same time we came in, another family was coming in. At the time, they had four children. They were moving from California, and they were coming from another similarly-minded denomination. Uh, but when they were in California, they fell under the teaching of a false teacher. And this teacher had convinced them that the world was going to end in September 1994. This isn't just out there on TV. This is within the Reformed Church teaching that, and they fell prey to it. So we came in to Evangel PCA at the same time together, and immediately our pastor started warning them against this kind of, listening to this kind of teaching, but they didn't listen. Uh, they went into massive debt, buying things they couldn't afford. They had more children, which there's no trouble having children, but they couldn't afford the ones they had. So they had more children, they spent more money, got deeper into debt, they made decisions for the future, even health decisions, based on the idea that the world would end one year from that time or less. That's within our midst, someone being fallen prey to this. Elders would warn them, teachers would warn them. I had multiple talks myself with them, and they still believed that this teacher was right, that September 1994, the world would end, Jesus would come back. Obviously, didn't happen. Not only did they go towards, roll towards bankruptcy, they had to move back with uh, the wife's parents because they couldn't afford to live in their house anymore. He lost his job based on ethical decisions he made during his time of employment about uh, predicting upon the future. And they also have had nothing but marital problems since then. I don't even know what their fate ultimately was in marriage. False teachers can show up anywhere and people can fall prey, even people that have grown up in what is basically a sound and strong tradition. In fact, as a side, this person still has a massive following, even though the world didn't come to an end in 1994. He has since convinced people to leave the local church, saying that the local church is no longer in God's plan. Go home and listen to me on the radio, is essentially what he says. And now he predicts that the world will come to an end in 2011. That's a false teacher who says such a thing. He's 84, so he's saying in 2011, the world will come to an end. Maybe he's hedging his bet, I don't know. Don't fall prey, and don't think sitting here, don't be pompous and think, couldn't happen to me. It happens, and it happens now. In fact, I hope you realize that we make every effort at our church to help you as a family. It's your family's ultimate responsibility before God to, Deuteronomy 6, talk to your children when they get up, when they rise, when they walk around about the way and before they go to bed, and talk with each other about the truths of the Word of God. And our church strives to support that. And I want you to just, from the time a child is born and baptized, we basically see a discipleship process that happens from beginning all the way till God calls us home. It starts in the early years with uh, right in the nursery and even in uh, children's church and Sunday school, the Bible content and Bible indoctrination we give, uh, catechetical learning. Most kids by the age of 10 know all the questions we just read, the questions and answers we just read earlier for their sound. They know who God is. They know what the scriptures principally teach, and they learn the scriptures in conjunction with this. We make every effort to have that happen. 
We don't program them out so they're out having fun while everyone's learning. We help to teach and catechize from the beginning. I hope you utilize this. We have to know these things. And we try to think, follow this through in assisting families all the way through. Our middle school years, our high school years are developed with fellowship, but also with Bible content and learning, in discipleship with one another, and integrated with other more mature believers in the process. I hope you take advantage of those things. Uh, we purposely, you know, we didn't just hire a youth pastor. We got a man who is seminary trained and understands what we mean by discipleship. We don't want him just to babysit. He's discipling the students of our church, helping you. And as we help him, communally, we come together to build steady believers as we become steady ourselves. Exposition of the word on a regular basis. We have our children in at a young age, hearing exposition, worship, home fellowship, group fellowship that puts these things together, grace and knowledge. Sunday school classes designed to help you grow in grace and knowledge. Specialized Bible studies for women, for men. New believer mentoring. In our school, the school in conjunction with this, if you're taking advantage of this, you've got it all reinforced on a regular basis and then integrated with a Christian life, uh, world and, view, life and world view picture constantly. The kids don't see a separation between God's word and God's world. This is all not just to keep busy. It's because we believe we have to be steady. And why is this the case? Look at what it says. Beware of false teachers. Verse 14, they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. And look at this, this important phrase. They entice unsteady souls. It doesn't say they go after the strong or the well-rooted or those who are on the rock. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. We are to beware of false teachers because the target will be those who are unsteady. But also notice something about these false teachers in verse 9. It's a reference back to what we have already studied at greater length last week, that they are predestined for condemnation. Look at verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. This indicates that there's a, a purpose for these false teachers. They don't fall outside of what we sang this morning, that our Father is sovereign. They're actually part of the sovereign plan. We must know this. But continuing in our text before us, look at verse 12. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. So a clear predetermination on the part of God to bring these to a point of destruction. Verse 14, and they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children, or as the NIV says it, accursed brood. That is their purpose is to be condemned, but they'll have a purpose otherwise on earth, which is for the glory of God even, those who are cursed. Verse 17, these are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. Almost an exact parallel to the book of Jude. And I am not saying that I can give complete explanation, but one cannot just skip over what is so clearly given here, that there is a predetermined fate for those who are false teachers. And their very being and existence are used of God to bring glory to himself and to bring purity upon the church as we have to wrestle with this teaching. Uh, Proverbs 16, verse 4, the Lord made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. In Peter's first letter, he says this, 
They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. As I said, I cannot give a complete explanation for why God predestined some for such a thing. But I know ultimately they contribute to his glory. One way this happens is by the purifying that false teaching actually brings. It causes people to have to wrestle with what's being said and to rely upon the word of God, to rely upon Christ, to go to Christ, to go to the word, to come together to determine. It's one of the beauties of the creeds that we speak. They came together, not because people were sitting around saying, let's make a creed. It's because some false teaching came in that caused the true body of believers to go to work and find out what God really says. These false teachers are saying this, what does God say? And they produce for us a statement that summarizes and protects based on the word of God. Don't be scared, don't be anxious, but beware. And please notice this also. In verse 15, it gives a parallel that I'll return to at the end of our time. But verse 15 shows that there's a magnification that happens uh, with this sin as it's compared to someone they all knew, Balaam. Verse 15, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. I, I would note for us that when you look at the false teachers spoken of, there's a sense in which because of their public place, that they're on display, that the sins they commit are common to all of us, but they're on display and magnified. We see them all the more vividly. So not, let us not think that they have fallen prey to all these things and we could not, but rather God has used them as an example, magnified common sin in them that we might beware. Think about how this works when someone's popular or a celebrity and something happens to them, the, the kind of sick fascination that surrounds their life and the penalties of their sins. You won't admit it, but I know you're all probably aware, unless you've been living in a cave, you're aware of what's happened in the life of Britney Spears lately. How about Lindsay Lohan? How about Paris Hilton? You couldn't be anywhere in the last couple of weeks without knowing what happened with Paris Hilton getting out of jail because she was sick. Okay, there's a sick fascination among us because we want to know what happens to them. Why? Because there's a sense of jealousy, perhaps, that they have so much money and can do whatever they want and get, seem to get away with it. Then there's a, a sicker fascination when they get caught or when they start to fall. We really want to see them get it. We really want to see them fall. That rich brat. Look what they did. And because they're public, it's magnified, and we can step away from it to a degree and say, I'm glad I'm not like them. When the fact is we just don't have the opportunity, do we, in a lot of cases? It's magnifying common sin that could be true of any one of us. As a side, I hope you pray for these people. It's a tough spot they're at. I'm glad I don't have access to the things they have access to. Their sin simply is magnified because they're in front. False teachers are made the example by Peter. Balaam is forever known to having to listen to a donkey had to set him right. But don't ever become so pompous. Let none of us become so pompous that we do not see this as directly relating to us as well. There's two basic categories of sin that typify the false teachers and are magnified because of their public status, yet they're also common to us. Look at verse 10 as we break it, the rest of our time, our study, into two portions. Verse 10 says, And especially those who indulge in, first, lust of defiling passion, secondly, and they despise authority. I would like to separate those two and, and notice how what else is said in this verse falls under one of those two headings. Lust of defiling, defiling passion, uh, we're talking about sensual sin. Sin that can be experienced by tasting, touching, feeling. So that's everything from sexual impurity to what we ingest, food and drink. 
runs the gamut. Sensual sin. We could sense it physically. Secondly, despising authority. This is arrogance. It's this unteachability that one might have. And if I had done the outline differently, maybe I would have put that first because it seems to beget the next, but really they're interrelated as we'll see. First, let's consider as the text talks about sensual sin. Let's beware of sensual sin as it's evidenced in the lives of the false teachers. It pertains to those things experienced by the senses. Again, verse 10, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion. Now, if we were to take this concept of sensual sin, I believe there's reference to two aspects of sensual sin. I think there's the reference to the physical uh, ingestion of food and drink. That's usually what's attributed to revelry, but it also clearly speaks of sexual purity or sexual sin in verse 13 down to verse 14. But look at verse 13 first. Suffering wrong is the wage for their wrongdoing. So they do these things and wrong comes to them as a result. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. Many commentators believe this phrase, while they feast with you, is a reference to their membership in the church. And they feast with you is actually a reference to either communion or the agape feast that people had in the early church time when they weren't legal and they get together to eat. And here they are among you, but they're also out reveling, carousing, as another text says it, in all manner of sensual sin. In Isaiah, a similar a similar situation was true of the people of God in Isaiah 5, verse 11. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. So lust of defiling passion can mean the physical component, but also clearly here in the text, uh, the sexual as well. Verse 14, they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. No comment of mine would make this any more vivid other than to draw our attention to what Jesus said in Matthew 5. It's not so much that uh, you're a rock star who tends to be able to have access to all that stuff, but you're insatiable for it and your eyes are always seeking. And you see people in a, in a terrible, jaded light all the time. In fact, this is the heart of what Jesus gets at when he says, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This is what is meant that they have eyes full of adultery. Listen, we live in a sex-saturated culture, but this is not new to our culture. In fact, Irish playwright Oscar Wilde, that you may be aware of, who wrote uh, the play, The Importance of Being Earnest. He was a novelist, a poet, a short story writer as well, very popular. He went after every sensual pleasure he could in his life. And he says something that is most telling. He is no lover of God and, to my knowledge, never became one. Listen to what he says about his experience. To get a feel or a sense for what is being described in our text here, Wilde wrote this. The gods have given me almost everything, but I let myself be lured into long spells of senseless and sensual ease. Tired of being on the heights I deliberately went to the depths in search for new sensation. What the paradox was to me in the sphere of thought, perversity became to me in the sphere of passion. I grew careless of the lives of others. I took pleasure where it pleased me and passed on. I forgot that every little action, the common day, makes or unmakes character, and that therefore what one has done in the secret chamber one has some day to cry aloud from the housetop. 
I ceased to be the Lord over myself. I was no longer the captain of my soul and did not know it. I allowed pleasure to dominate me. It ended in horrible disgrace. Wilde was in prison for pedophilia. He was a promiscuous, homosexual pedophile who eventually died of syphilis, never repenting. He gave himself over to sensuality. And he describes exactly what the Apostle Paul says in Galatians. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Self-indulgent sin always lends diminishing returns. If you're looking for a good investment, self-indulgence isn't it always gives us diminishing returns. Think about these areas of sensuality, really honestly, in your own heart, in your own life. Think about the issues of food and drink. You know, where do these things have place in your life? Do you struggle with these things? Uh, how are you seeing God help you with victory over slavery to them? The things themselves are not evil, are they? But it's our idolatry of them that causes such uh, a war within us about whether at that moment and I could speak from experience, especially as it relates to food. Do I love Jesus more than my third helping? I honestly have to ask myself at that moment how it is that I, even in a small way, I'm not talking to the degree that the false teachers have given themselves. You know, the big difference here is what? You've been saved. Holy Spirit is convicting you because God loves you. And so you have the struggle that you can engage in. There's no struggle here for this magnified example. But for you, there's a struggle because God loves you and you're his child. And so he works on you in these areas. The same could be said in the area of sexual purity. Let me just talk to dads today. It's Father's Day. You know, very, very honestly, many of you should get rid of cable. It's not helping your walk. I mean, the commercials alone on regular TV aren't helping. Maybe you should just get rid of it. How much do you love it? One further. Email me if you don't agree. I know you will. But you ought to be on some kind of internet, internet accountability, and I mean radical accountability, not just like the safe connect thing or where you just, you know, if you're smart enough with computers, you can figure a way around to that. Something that basically sends a log of everything you're on to someone else. Covenant Eyes is a great one. I'm getting no kickback from them. But brothers, if you're not on something like this, you're one of the very few on earth that's not having trouble in this area then. We don't mess with that. We try not to. I mean, everything I have goes to Nathan. Everything Nathan has comes to me. And everything Brian has comes to Nathan and me. <laughs> we understand the seriousness of this, and we're sinners, and we're prone to the same things and have the same temptations and understand totally why this would be a problem. Because of Christ, we can have power over this. And I would say to those men who travel, and even some of the ladies who do, but especially the men who travel, maybe I'll speak to the wives of the men who travel, Call the hotel ahead of time. You could shut off movies. You only have to call the desk and tell them 99 and they hit it and then there's no possibility unless you call and overturn it, which I realize is a possibility. But generally, for most brothers who love the Lord, it's, they need some level of accountability and it's that simple one that will help. Yes, there's these things that can be overridden. But I think it'd be a great idea, especially for those brothers who travel with all the temptations that go there, that your wives would be active and you would not resent her for having that question and that action taken when you do go and stay at places. Just a little insight from the lives of these magnified sinners 
to us common sinners. Look at verse 17. These are waterless springs and mist driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. What a picture, a waterless spring or a waterless well. You're thirsty and you go to this well that looks like it ought to promise something. And as you look over, there's nothing but dryness in it. Nothing but dryness in it. It doesn't deliver what it says it can. This is the truth of insatiable sin. It never, ever delivers what it promises. This is not all, though. Let's look at the other aspect, the other category The category I'm terming is arrogance, very simply. In verse 10 it says, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. We're talking about those who do not submit to anybody. They know it all. They're totally unteachable. Of all the traits one could exhibit that are most dangerous, I think the one, especially for leaders, that is most dangerous is a person who will not be corrected. A person who will not place themselves under uh, under authority. They know it all. In anything you say to them, they got to retort. They know it all. Never been wrong their whole life, in record, at least that they can record. This is a terrible, terrible trait for anyone to have, but especially one in leadership. And this arrogance begets these sins we've already spoken of and builds upon and feeds them. Notice how they're described in verse 10. They despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. They're bold and willful about it. Just, just in the daytime we saw earlier. Whereas angels, through greater in, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. This is an involved passage with much uh, uh, spoken about it. What I believe is being said here, this term glorious ones comes from the same phrase doxos that we get doxology, glorious ones. It's attributed to angelic beings, angelic majesties. And if this is taken like I think it should be in parallel with the book of Jude, I would say what we have here is a reference to these bold, willful, arrogant, prideful, conceited teachers blaspheming angels. And in particular, if this again parallels like I think it does, fallen angels. So they're in a sense getting in the face of demonic power, something that even the good angels wouldn't mess with. How do I say this? In Jude, verses 8 through 10, listen to what it says. Yet in like manner, these people, also speaking of false teachers in Jude, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Then right away in Jude it says, but when the archangel Michael, that's a good angel, contending with the devil, was disputed about the, uh, was disputing about the body of Moses. So the archangel and Lucifer, who was an archangel, a high angel, cast out as Satan, arguing with Michael the archangel, They're arguing over the body of Moses, which is interesting on its own. I can't wait to get to heaven to find out what that was about. He did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So Michael the archangel Lucifer, the devil, the fallen angel, arguing, and Michael doesn't blaspheme him or disrespect him because of his power, but yet he turns to God and says, the Lord rebuke you. By the way, no one ought to talk to a demon. Talk to Jesus about the demon. So you have this conflict and there's a respect for demonic powers there and these false teachers are so bold and willful that they don't even respect those power demons are way older than all of us as wise as you think you are they've had thousands of years to perfect wisdom and these guys are so bold that they get in the face of demons whether they believed in them or not it's on, on we don't know but so bold and so arrogant and so conceited that even angels wouldn't mess with them and here they are messing with them 
Verse 12, but these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant. This logically flows, this kind of boldness and this kind of a willful uh, rebellion, they are just people who just spew on about anything. They talk about it as if they have authority in the matter, and they don't. They speak like oblivious farm animals who don't understand their destiny, who smile when you feed them the feed to fatten them up. Elevated rhetoric for sure, yet ignorant. Jonathan Edwards speaks to the God-fearing man, the God-fearing woman, the one who trusts in Jesus, and he says this with warning regarding pride. It is by spiritual pride that the mind defends and justifies itself in other errors and defends itself against light by which it might be actually corrected and reclaimed. It's all right to be wrong as long as when you're corrected, you're reclaimed and you are corrected and receive correction. The spiritually proud man thinks he is full of light already and feels that he does not need instruction. So he is ready to ignore the offer of it. Self-willed ignorance becomes self-willed arrogance, self-dependence, self-confidence. And notice verse 13. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions. They do it out in the open. It's not just at night. They do it out in the open, and they revel in their deception. You know, uh, this past week, as Nathan and I were away for our general assembly, in the daytime, we turned on the television, and we counted at least four false teachers that were preaching. I say false preachers because this is my test. What they were saying was going to make them rich, and that's why they were saying it. I could verify it by what they said. What they said did not even come close to aligning with the scripture. But they did it openly in the daytime in the name of Christ. And they sat there, all four different genres of, of uh, talk show. But the same theme was that they looked at the scripture as a way to make yourself prosper. Every one of them. And so what was so interesting about it is, if you would believe that you would be made to prosper by following those instructions, it always included some support of them, which would make them rich. They were promoting their own greedy gain by teaching these false doctrines, the epitome of false teaching, open in the daytime to flip on the TV. And the reason why, why there's so many of those guys on TV? Because people with ministries like this one and other ones don't have money to buy TV time. Those guys got the money to buy the TV time because some poor little lady is sitting there sending in their money thinking her plight is because they're not doing what she said, what they said. False teachers, openly in the daytime. And a white suit isn't always an indication, but it usually gives you a little bit of a hint. Don't be unteachable, my dear brothers and sisters. One of the great moments of my life, and it's a never-ending battle, is one who's pompous and arrogant as a sinner, is when I sit with kids, especially when I was a youth pastor, and some child would say something that would totally, profoundly open up something that seven years of theological training never showed me. Don't ever think you can't learn from someone, because as soon as you're sitting there like that, you are prey for a real fall. Remember the words of Paul. Paul, of all people, saying, by the power of the Holy Spirit, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. You don't know it all now. Proverbs 12, 15, more practically maybe speaking to us, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to counsel. I want to conclude by looking at this example that is given, very briefly, with Balaam. The popular Balaam, of, of the stuff of all sorts of children's stories. Look at verse 15. As these false teachers are compared with Balaam, let us check to see we don't fall into this sin that Balaam falls into. 
They have followed the way of Balaam, verse 15, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgressions. Now, remember the story of Balaam. It's a great one in Scripture. In Numbers 22, when Israel, the church in the Old Testament's enemy, Moab, was aligning with Midian to try to get this prophet for hire. He's a mysterious character because he has some kind of ability from God, but trying to get him to curse Israel because they knew Israel was given great power by God to take the promised land, essentially. And so Balaam uh, is weighing his options because what fuels Balaam is his own gain, not the glory of God, but his own gain. How can he use his prophetic abilities to bring himself riches or honor? Listen to the story just a little bit. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the fees for divination in their hand. So they're going to pay him big bucks. And they came to Balaam and gave him Balak's message. That's the king of Moab. And he said to them, he said, that is the prophet, lodge here tonight and I will bring back word to you. The Lord speaks to me. So the princes of Moab stayed with Balaam. And God came to Balaam and said, who are these men with you? Now, this is anthropomorphic for saying that God is working on Balaam here. Not that he doesn't know, but he's now interacting with him. And verse 10, and Balaam said to God, Balak the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has said to, sent me, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt, and it covers the face of the earth. Now come, curse them for me. Perhaps I shall be able to fight against them and drive them out. God said to, God said to Balaam, You shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. So Balaam rose in the morning and said to the princes, No can do. Now you think, well, he's obeying God. Listen, he knew at that level he'd be dead if he messed with God. But in his heart, God will reveal that he really is hoping for a way to make a buck out of this. And so, again, they say, whatever the fee, we'll pay you. Curse these people. Again, God says, don't do it. Don't do it. But God knows the heart of Balaam, who looks like a true teacher, a true prophet, but he knows his heart. And the way he's going to show it is in the most interesting way. He says to Balaam, after the third inquiry by the Moabites and the Midianites, God came to Balaam at night and said, if the men have come to you, come to call you, rise, go with them, but only do what I tell you. That's the mark of whether it's a false teacher. Only do what I tell you. How do we know what he tells if it's here? So Balaam, thinking to himself, here's my ticket. Balaam rose in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went to the princes of Moab. But God's anger was kindled because he went, and the angel of the Lord took his hand in the way as he as his adversary. So the angel stands and blocks him. Now he's riding on the donkey and his two servants were with him. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road and with drawn sword in his hand and the donkey turned aside out of the road and went in the field. And actually we read in the text that he crushed his leg up against the wall and Balaam struck his donkey. He's beaten on his donkey. And the donkey says to him, yo, what's up with that? <laughs> that's not the ESV, but that's a version that really captures the heart of it. What are you doing? How foolish. Look at the angel. Well, he couldn't see the angel. He could not see God's will because he was consumed with his own self-indulgence. He was consumed with how he can make a buck out of this whole situation. And he thought in that moment that he could waylay God's wrath at the same time manipulate man and get rich. And that's the heart of what a false teacher does. They look like they're in conjunction with God, may have some knowledge and connection with what they know and how they're able to talk. But in the end, they're really there for their own glory. That's what they're there for. And I would say in a, in a micro sense that when I choose to sin, when I go down these roads, for that moment, I want my glory. This is part two, three parts, warning us against false teachers. 
let us pray. And I'm going to use the words of Augustine for this prayer. O Lord, what evil have we not done? Or if there is evil that we have not done, what evil is there that we have not spoken? If there is any that we have not spoken, what evil is there that we have not thought to do? But you, O Lord, are good. You are merciful to us in Christ. You saw how deep we were sunk in death, and it was your power that drained dry the well of corruption in the depths of our hearts. All that you have asked of us was to deny our own wills and accept yours. Forgive us for every failure to do so and help us to follow you in every way and always. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Let's together turn to 628 in preparation for the Lord's Supper and sing verses 1 through 3. Of come, my soul, thy suit prepare. And let's stand as we sing. 